Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Watch ESPN. Riders all gone. Management also lay off hosts. Not many people left. Still, we have for you the sportsing with jumping and throwing. Maybe you still like us. We like you. Now Monday night game of some kind. Here is host Wendy Samoyed, part-time assistant audio content editor. Greetings from stadium with big green wall. It's time for the socks and birds. Could be a grand slam or a, a batter up. But if the one team is much better than the other one, that doesn't seem much fair. Right, digital media intern Sean Peabody? Well, athletically-wise, we are scoreless, the game not having started. But if Tampa can get a stop here, the other team will not go. There you have it, everybody. In words of president, this job more complicated than I thought. Maybe time to hire some people back. For now, listen to show about climate change and worms. And now, new host of ESPN Incontinent Horse Rodeo Hour, Colin McEnroe. I'm just doing that part-time because they're sorting things out there. They're just in a period of chaos right now at ESPN. Our friends down the road at Bristol, uh, our hearts go out. Well, not so much to them, but to the people they laid off, uh, including at least one very good friend of ours, Doug Glanville. Anyway, that's a whole other story. We're not talking about that today. Later in the show, we're going to talk to uh, Gail Sheehy. She is, of course, a famed uh, journalist and lifestyles researcher. You know her for passages, of course. Uh, but she's uh, also written memoirs and a biography of Hillary Clinton. We're going to talk to her about both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, both about the same age, going through very different passages. And then uh, towards the end, we're going to talk about, we're going to give you some hopeful news. Uh, it's a small thing, or maybe it's not a small thing. Plastic bags, the stuff that they, you know, that sort of never to degrade plastic in plastic bags that uh, not only constitutes an eyesore, but really sort of a huge pollution hazard particularly in places like the ocean. Turns out there's a kind of worm that may be able to break down that pa- that uh, wax worm uh, that can break down that plastic. So we'll talk to you, uh, talk to two people involved in the coverage of that and the science behind it. But right now we're going to talk about the climate. Uh, that would be a very important thing to talk about after this weekend. It seemed like suddenly on a whole bunch of different fronts, uh, climate science was uh, back in the news. Maybe it should never be out of the news. Joining us right now is Susan Matthews, science writer for Slate Magazine. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Colin. So um, where to begin? Well, I, I maybe, although it's maybe not the most important thing, but uh, one of the kind of um, hot button issues on social media over the weekend was the debut uh, on uh, in the New York Times uh, of a new columnist, uh, Brett Stevens, former Wall Street Journal deputy uh, editorial page editor. And he, in fact, began his, col- his uh, columnist career at the New York Times with a column about climate change or climate science, although I think most people who read it found it muddy enough to have it. It's almost a a hard column to summarize. But um, it seems as though one of the things that he was trying to say would be that that people who are worried about climate change would be better off de-emphasizing the certainty of the science about that, which seems a little counterintuitive somehow. Right. I mean, this is the question about Brett Stevens generally, is that when he was brought on 
to the paper, uh, a lot there was a lot of uproar because he was, you know, accused of being a climate change denier, and there was just a lot of back and forth about that. And you kind of see in his first column, it uh, on one level, it kind of reads like his attempt to recenter himself and to say, "Hey guys, you were all freaking out about this, but don't worry, I'm really a moderate. Look, I believe that climate change is real." And so there's one way to read the column and to come away and think, "Huh, maybe we were freaking out about." nothing. Um, but I th- I think that the real point of his column was essentially to argue that people who are skeptical about climate science are reasonable. Uh, I think that was very close to the exact language of the push notification that the New York Times sent out about the column. And um, I, I don't think that that is an accurate or fair statement. It is not reasonable to be skeptical about climate science. And so in general, this column is dredging back up an entire debate that is really a quite old and classic debate that climate deniers tend to use, that uh, they're they're not denying climate change, they're just being skeptical of the certainty. And so that's why I find uh, this first column to be just exactly what we were worried about. Well, he starts out, and this kind of feeds into a show that we're doing tomorrow. Tomorrow we're doing a show uh, about what we call the era of unexpected outcomes, the way so many things have happened in sports, politics, entertainment that were not supposed to happen. Uh, and so he kind of begins on that note. He says, look, you know, Hillary Clinton's team was uh, essentially certain that they were going to win. They didn't win. Uh, and because of that, you should, and I'm, I'm perhaps paraphrasing unfairly, but you should take all kinds of things like climate science, where it seems like an odds-on certainty anyway. That shouldn't be enough to make you certain. But that seems to me like a very false equivalency. I mean, you know, statistically thinking that you've got an election locked up as opposed to the preponderance of science telling you a very urgent problem is not just at our doorstep, but kind of in the house already. Uh, Those don't seem to me to be the same thing. Precisely. I I think the main problem there is exactly what you just said. When you're assessing what could happen in one um, election, you're looking at a very different level of probabilities and outcomes than when you're assessing the entire body of science that talks about climate change. And even... Um, beyond the probabilities, mechanistically, we understand why climate change is happening and we see its effects already right now in the world in different places. And so to create this um, idea that there's an equivalence between uh, the the wrong or the misleading way that we thought that that Clinton was going to win or even just things that have happened that have been uncertain in the past few months, you mentioned sports, which is a good one, that because those uncertain things ended up happening that these that climate science might actually be on a shakier foundation than than we think is just a nonsense assumption it's it's an apples to oranges comparison right and it it also seems as though i mean in this column and this column in in and of itself isn't that important but it's an interesting microcosm for talking about the way the journalism covers this um and you know i mean one of the things that stevens does is he takes you know, one of the more basic and anodyne and less frightening statistics about uh, the rise in temperature and sort of says, well, I accept that. And and I think <laughs> the problem with that is that if when you really get into the nitty gritty of climate change, it's really the kind of cascading problem. And the fact also that, you know, um, an average rise in temperature across the globe is not as alarming as, for example, 
the latest report out of the Arctic, which indicates that things are happening there at a very fast and furious rate. I mean, saying that you accept kind of the most, you know, the least alarming thing that you could possibly accept, that also seems to be a little bit of, um, I don't know, not playing quite fair. Yeah, I I think that this is something that uh, David Roberts and Vox kind of got at very well in a in a piece that he wrote today too. And the problem here is that he's trying to position himself as being eminently reasonable on this topic, while then continuing to be completely unreasonable about it. And this is a classic denialist tactic. They continuously say, okay, I, I agree with that, but I'm just not quite certain about this. Here are my questions. Answer my questions. And it's really a, a general strategy to delay any actual action or any actual agreement about this is happening, so now we need to move on to doing something. It, it's trying to keep the conversation in uh, a place of just litigating the uncertainty around climate change rather than moving on to, we know that this is happening. We can actually see it happening in the world in different places right now. What are we going to do about it? Um, you know, while that's happening, of course, there's the climate march on Washington. You've got tens of thousands of people showing up in Washington and smaller parallel demonstrations uh, around the country. And, and the Trump administration's way of meeting this was to remove uh, quite a bit of meaningful climate data from the EPA website. What what are we to make of that? Well, I think that there's an entire problem right now, which everyone is trying to grapple with, of how to combat this insidious and bizarre uh, attack on science from the Trump administration. When you have somebody like Scott Pruitt leading the EPA who is rejecting the EPA's own science on certain pesticides um, and is just, again, is just completely outside of the the realm of reason on this, it's a, it's a really difficult thing to address. And you mentioned the climate march. There's one of the reasons why I think the Stevens column is so uh, damaging and so so is also relatable to certain readers is because he's trying to make this analogy that some science isn't certain. And there is a problem right now in the sciences where there are things that are uncertain. The, the reproducibility cri uh, crisis is happening, the replication crisis, and um, there are constant misuse of statistics and there's a lot of just general bad journalism around science that is happening right now. And so there's some things that he's saying that are true and get at this like worry that a lot of people have. And yet at the same time, the issue here is that he's equating these small, these smaller issues that science itself is very aware of and is trying to self-correct. He's trying to use that to undermine the entire idea of expertise. And I think that's where we come back to Donald Trump. When you listen to him, when he talks about climate change, he almost makes an argument that, you know, there there's the classic argument, I'm not a scientist, I can't ass assess this. But Donald Trump basically seems to suggest that nobody is a scientist. Nobody can assess this. And the general attack on expertise in that way is is something that is really frightening and I think is the is the real battle that uh, we need to be aware of. It's, it's bigger than just this one column. And and as you pointed out, too, I mean, this it isn't just this one column at The New York Times, even that they uh, on one of their podcasts have. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with looking at the 
the labor side of climate change and, and the, the possible employment uh, market consequences of adjusting the way that we handle fossil fuels and, and turning towards alternative energies. But there was, as you pointed out, a rather mawkish installment of, um, of the Times' Daily podcast where they the host, Michael Barbaro, wound up kind of weeping uh, after talking to a coal miner named Mark Gray. As I say, nothing wrong with that. But I mean, it's sort of in a way it overemphasizes an aspect of, of this picture. Right. And they're both actually attempts to uh, correct and, and solve this same problem. Both the the daily podcast interview and I think even Stevens hire to The New York Times, I read as kind of a reaction to this general idea that the media got it wrong around Donald Trump. And now we need to reach out to the middle of the country and embrace uh, those people and, and figure out what is going on with them if we're going to have a hope of coming back together and, and having some common ground. And the I don't think that that's a bad plan. Obviously, we should do that. The media needs to report on and be representative of the entire country. Um, I think it's very valid to call up a coal miner and figure out what his opinions are on uh, these different things that have that have been happening. But in the end, the coal miner is he's just offering opinions. And the real problem with that interview was that in the end, Barbaro seemed to indicate that because that if he went to coal mining country, he would his his facts would be changed. And everyone is entitled to their own opinions, but no one is entitled to their own facts. And the fact that the New York Times is putting up these opinions without, um, you know, adjudicating whether or not they're correct on the same pages is very problematic, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think I even read somewhere uh, that, of course, maybe I'm committing the same offense just by beginning a statement that way, that the number of retail jobs that have been lost in in modern American labor history exceeds the number of coal miners that there are. In other words, there's shrinkage in a lot of sectors of the job market. You can certainly make the argument that, you know, coal probably is an industry of diminishing returns anyway. The best thing you could probably do for coal miners is start retraining them, see if you can find them something else to be doing. Uh, not even, you know, yeah, go ahead. Certainly, yeah. There's been kind of a romantic romanticization of the coal miner as an institution. And from one angle, that is understandable because coal mining jobs are concentrated in specific areas. So if you have a coal mining town, you have a whole bunch of other industries, whereas retail jobs are spread out. And when they're hit, it, the, the impacts aren't quite as visible. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should continue to allow coal miners to do this thing for the sake of their jobs and their industry when both the action that they're taking is is harmful for themselves, is harmful for the environment, uh, is not going to be sustainable in the long run. And if we did shift gears and switch, the solar industry is one of the fastest growing industries in in the in the United States right now. There are a lot of other things that uh, that w- it would make sense to sub out that um, would be better on a, on a number of accounts. And that doesn't mean that it's not tragic for a coal miner's family that their lifestyle and their means of employment are, are changing entirely. It It's just that that fact that that is tragic doesn't also mean that we need to, you know, just go back to 
whatever is best for them. That doesn't make sense in the broader picture. Yeah, well, in the broader picture, it does seem at times as though Donald Trump's message of making America great again has to do with the kind of hearkening back to an economy that sort of has stopped functioning the way that it did 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Um, The notion that you can jumpstart it back to its old state, not just in coal mining, but kind of across the board, as opposed to getting your economy ready to be competitive uh, in a changing world with a changing set of demands, changing international standards, um, it, it does seem that the coal miner is kind of a nice symbol of this. It doesn't really make sense to fetishize coal miners at that level. Completely. And that's what's so interesting, particularly in that daily New York Times interview. Um, the coal miner himself is saying, I don't want a handout. I want to go to work. But is what is the real handout here? He was kind of criticizing, I think, Hillary Clinton's plan that there would be a fund to retrain and to provide, you know, money for for the families who are affected by this. But isn't it also a handout for the government to prop up dying industries so that they can continue instead of to adjust to what could possibly become a self-sustaining uh, new expansion into, you know, 21st century economics? Um, Susan Matthews, or talking to Susan Matthews, a science writer for Slate magazine, I guess sort of the last thing I'll, uh, I want to ask you about it in a very broad way is, and, and I don't know, I mean, how new this really is, although it seems more excessive right now, this notion that science somehow or other has a politics, that, um, that there's a way in which uh, a party laying claims to certain kinds of scientific information is making a partisan as opposed to empirical statement. And this seems to be getting debated out more and more that way uh, at the level of, oh, well, you're just saying that because you're a Democrat or a Republican. Yeah, this is this is one of the yeah, this is a ter- this is a frightening thing that we need to uh, be able to figure out that has just gotten worse, I think, in the past, particularly since since Trump's election. Science is always political. Um, It should not be partisan. And there is definitely a problem right now of people just agreeing with things that agree with their previously stated views. And that's not just a problem with science. That's a that's a problem in general. At Slate, I think that in the science section, we really try to um, question to, to treat science as skeptically as we treat other uh, any other topic. One thing that kind of freaked me out personally about the March for Science uh, is that as a science editor, it felt strange to go and to march for science. I can't really imagine a politics editor going and marching for politics. There's this general idea that science is good no matter what. And I think that we need to reassess that and, and realize that empiricism is good. The practices of science is good. Uh, we need to do science along along those lines, but just saying and and going in on the idea that science for science's sake is is something to fight for is a is a problem right now when, as I mentioned earlier, the science community is grappling with a number of different problems of how it is adjudicating science, what it is publishing, um, you know, how how fallible the peer review system might be. Um, there are a lot of problems that need to be addressed. And, and those are things that are also n- should not be partisan. It should be people on both sides of the political spectrum that are interested in in correcting that. Yeah. I'm not so sure how much of it is a march for science as it is a march against the wanton dismissal of scientific evidence. Uh, 
<laughs> which, which I think we all can agree is disturbing. I'm, I'm, ass, I'm assuming you know most of the scientists, even the, the scientists that that Brett Stevens talks about, who may look at some of the claims that are made by by advocacy groups, may be running a tiny bit ahead of the science. I, I'm I'm guessing that the wanton dismissal of scientific evidence is much more disturbing to the scientific community than the fact that occasionally climate change uh, advocates or, or people concerned about it make claims that run a little bit ahead of the science. Yes. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. All right. Susan Matthews, uh, science writer for Slate Magazine. Thanks so much for joining us. Hope you'll come back someday. And we're going to take a little break. We're going to get ready for Gil Sheehy. Talk a little bit about the passages of several different prominent people. All right. Uh, this year, receiving the honorary degree at the 18th Commencement uh, Exercises at Goodwin College on June 3rd in East Hartford will be Gail Sheehy. I barely need to tell you who that is. Journalist, author of 17 books, probably most notably Passages, Predictable Crises of Adult Life. She also wrote a memoir about her own passages, Daring, My Passages, and a biography of Hillary Clinton, Hillary's Choice. Uh, she's joining us right now for a conversation about a few topics related to her expertise. Thanks so much for being on the show, Gail. I'm thrilled to be with you, Colin. Um, let's begin. I, I've become increasingly fascinated with the situation in which Hillary Clinton finds herself right now. Uh, and I think it's an unusual one. And, and you know a lot about her. Uh, you know a lot about her from the source itself. Um, and, and, and I know one of the things you want to talk about, too, are boomer women and their millennial uh, children. And there, there's a good story there, interesting story there involving Hillary Clinton and Chelsea. And we'll come to that. But, you know, right now she seems to be in such an odd position, a person maybe that everybody or a lot of people would like to hear from right now. But but pinned down a little bit, some somewhat by the conventions of losing candidates, not saying too much about the, the the sitting president, but also by I think special burdens that get placed on her. It might even be harder for her to talk than it would be for say Mitt Romney in two thousand nine. What what is your thinking about that? Well, if you think about Hillary Clinton, gained so much experience. Years and years and years of being in a governor's mansion, being in the White House, then you know, running for Senate, being a, uh, running around the world, doing all kinds of things to help empower women off the sidelines of her full-time job as a as our top diplomat, and then running for election twice. So she gets all that all that experience in order to show that she can perform the role of commander-in-chief as well as all of the other responsibilities of the president. And then she's seen as, you know, remote, you know, a rich older woman, you know, member of the elite, um, just not relatable. So it's almost like you can't win. Um, And here we have uh, Dianne Feinstein, about whom I've just written for Mother Jones. She's been in the Senate for 25 years. And only then was she able to move up from the Intelligence Committee to the Judiciary Committee when her mentor, your Senator Patrick, uh, not your Senator, but Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, made room for her and let her graduate after 25 years. (laughs) And then what happens? People say, well, she's too old to run for another term. So it's really very dismaying when you think about how do women handle themselves running for politics because in Trump's world, 
being qualified, having spent time as a politician, is a disqualifier. That's what his his that's the number one disqualifier for his um, supporters. When you look at Hillary Clinton and map her onto what you know about how women make transitions and maybe specifically about how women entering their 70s make transitions, what would you expect? I mean, I assume we can all agree she's not going to run for anything again. Maybe we don't agree about that. But what would you expect her to see uh, or to do in, in the coming, say, five years? And what would you expect her to get out of it? Well, I think she's going to do two very, very obvious things. One is she's going to throw herself into encouraging, helping to train, helping to empower younger women to run for political office. She very much deeply believes in that. And the other thing she's going to do is support her daughter going into politics, which is probably one of the greatest uh, blessings of her life, having lost so bitterly a second time around. She has trained this wonderful Chelsea Clinton to be as to have as much equilibrium as Hillary's mother trained her to have. It's really interesting. They did the same thing. Hillary's mother um, would bring out a carpenter's mo- uh, a, a carpenter's level with the bubble in the middle, mm-hmm. and she'd show it to her children and say, "Now you want to keep the bubble inside you in the middle." I'm going to tip it one way and the other way. And that, you're very sad or very mad. You don't want to do that. You want to keep it in the middle. And Hillary gave her daughter the same lesson about equilibrium. And she and Bill Clinton trained her by telling her at the dinner table when she was only six years old and he was going to run for president, you know, people are going to say really, really mean things about your father. They're going to say that he doesn't really care about doing anything for people. And Chelsea's eyes would fill with tears, and then then Bill Clinton would play hit one of his adversaries and say terrible things about himself. And they trained her to be able to, you know, keep her emotions in check. So she's going to be another, you know, really main major political figure, I believe. Um, I mean, I, I have to bow down to you in terms of expertise, although I'm not entirely sure I buy that. In fact, I liked I liked your first scenario better, where Hillary Clinton is just involved generally in training a generation, helping a generation uh, of millennial women get ready to be politicians. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a big tradition of that. Of course, Yale has hosted a women's campaign school for uh, many, many years now. It's a great idea. You know, I look at Chelsea Clinton, and I wonder if she's not going to, A, tr- kick a lot of the same trip wires uh, that her mother has kicked that have made it difficult for her to be a politician. And I also wonder whether Americans are increasingly distrustful of dynastic politics, just in the same sense that Jeb Bush got a pretty lukewarm reception, uh, reception this time around. That notion that we need another generation of Bushes or Clintons or anything, I, I just wonder how sellable that is now. Well, I, I agree. It's a, it's a, it's who knows? It's up for grabs. Chelsea is probably, I'm sure she's quite her own person. And she's done her life uh, in a different way than Hillary did, which is very interesting, very clear, different pattern for millennials and for um, their boomer moms. Uh, Hillary uh, had Chelsea when she was 34. She never stopped working uh, all the way through. But she practically killed herself trying to mother Chelsea while she was on the road so much as a high-powered attorney and going to board meetings. But she would always have time to do homework over the phone with with uh, Chelsea and, uh, you know, send back and forth with um, their, the homework on facts. Um, so, but Chelsea, 
um, really took time. She got, what, two graduate degrees and then a, a Ph.D. from Oxford and had many jobs and really furthered her education until she got married to a boy that she had met when she was, uh, what, nine years old in the White House. So she wasn't taking any chances on somebody who might might be a little, um, you know, undisciplined. So I think she's in a position now in her later 30s when that's the time when many women who really want to have a family life first enter politics. They can't start when they're 20s like men do if they want to have a family. And so I think she'll apply her own path. Um, She certainly has had as much uh, experience as you could possibly get. And I think there will be a lot of people who will be resentful. Oh, no, not another Clinton. Oh, save me. But I think that for Hillary, it's probably one of the greatest um, salves to her own losses to have such an accomplished daughter who is following her model because they are so close and she truly admires and loves her mom. Although we shouldn't have our children be salves, right? I mean, you know, Chelsea has her own wounds that she's been through because of all the stuff that we've just talked about. I mean, rarely has a a young girl had to go through the kinds of slings and arrows that we saw Chelsea Clinton go through in the 90s. It seemed to me to be the kindest thing. I hope Hillary Clinton at some point sits Chelsea down and says, you know, you don't have to do any of this. I'd be perfectly happy if you just did something unrelated to politics or joined a nuclear freeze movement and ran that or, you know, whatever. Do whatever you want to do, but you don't have to do this for me, okay? I ran for president, I lost. It's not your job to fix that. Well, we don't know whether Hillary is pushing Chelsea or Chelsea has made this decision on her own. For quite a long time, she said that she wasn't interested in politics. And I didn't hear anything about Hillary pushing her true, in true. other directions. So well, that remains to be seen, but it's, a, it's an important point. But what's really, I think, fascinating about this generation of millennial women and their moms is how close they are. And this goes across the generation. It's quite astonishing because it was the opposite for boomer girls and their moms, most of whom had been stay-at-home moms, and the boomer women girls wanted to do something different. And there was a generation gap, famous one, in the Mm -hmm. 60s. And uh, it's totally different for this generation of moms and daughters. Um, let's move on to this other guy uh, who's also uh, in the same generational cohort. He op- occupies the White House these days. And, you know, I think you and I have been reading some of the same things recently, including some of these reflective hundred days in interviews. And there are ways in which I, I, I you know, that whole thing he gave, I think, was to Reuters about, you know, this is sort of different than he thought it was going to be. And he can't even drive a car anymore. And, he, you know, he, he feels very sort of penned in by this. I'm kind of wondering whether this guy is going to voluntarily leave this office at some point, that maybe it's not <laughs> what he wants to do ultimately no, with this right. time of his life. Well, he's just said recently, boy, I used to have a great life. I had a lot of things going. This is really hard. I mean, it's just one of the millions of things that he had no preparation for, no idea about. Yeah, guess what? Being the president of the United States, even when you say you don't give a damn about the rest of the world, you're only going to be looking for making America great, it's really hard. You've got to know how to deal with all these you know, people in, the, in Congress who think they should be in your chair uh, and get them on your side in order to create legislation to make things better and get your poll numbers up. But I think the main thing that I tried to convey in my take on his, Trump's first 100 days was that the very most basic 
need that most people have is a sense of trust. That's what we learn in our first 18 months. He doesn't trust anybody. He's said it over and over and over again. And that's pretty shocking. I mean, he said, uh, you know, I don't trust anybody. Uh, the world is a vicious and brutal place. Even your friends are out to get you. They want your job, your money, your wife. His father trained him to be a killer. That was the only alternative to being a loser. He was sent to military school to toughen him up still further. And here's other words of his. Man is the most vicious of animals, and life is a series of battles ending in victory or defeat. It's either or. There's no room in there for diplomacy. There's no room in there for understanding how to manage relations with someone as totally unpredictable as the leader of North Korea. And, and it's really scary to have our country, um, it, you know, in, in playing brinkmanship with a young, inexperienced child uh, ruler of a very desperately famished country. You know, one of the people that you talk to, I'm always fascinated that this guy is, I mean, I don't know, how old is Robert J. Lifton now, speaking of age? He's got to be about 90 years old. Um, he's, and this guy, he's a fascinating guy who sort of really kind of looked at uh, ex extreme religious movements, sometimes known as cults, looked at sort of situations in which people create these closed off semi or, ex or not semi paranoid situations for themselves. I think he used the term malignant normalcy to describe the, uh, the atmosphere fear uh, around Donald Trump, that kind of notion that you decide that something is true, like that you had the biggest inauguration crowd ever or one of the biggest inauguration crowds ever, and then you make Sean Spicer go out and say that, whether he thinks it's right. true or not. Well, that's, that's, that's one, one thing he trusts his people to do, because he'll fire them otherwise, which is to make his lies sound true. And, you know, back him up no matter what, and it's kind of amazing how many people who were you know, pretty good guys and women beforehand, but they completely forget everything they've ever known about, you know, protecting basic American values and being truthful and ethical uh, when they come under Donald Trump's uh, magic. Um, and, you know, there's, there's something to really think about. Here's a man who congratulates despots one after another. Turkey's Erdogan, Egypt's General Sisi, Russia's Putin, and now President Duarte of the Philippines, who's had thousands of people murdered for selling or taking drugs. Okay, it's a big problem, drugs, but uh, when you just say you're going to completely dismantle the, uh, any kind of a legal system and just say, okay, we're just going to mow down everybody who does drugs to show what a tough guy I am, I, I, I'm not sure that Trump isn't going to take some ideas from this guy, and he's in, he's welcoming to the White House. So, uh, yeah, and I think that brings up the question of, I mean, you know, one doesn't want to be horrifically unfair or to overcharacterize somebody. But, yeah, you just ran through a group of people who are all tyrants, basically. Right. Um, uh, he's befriending all of them, welcoming all of them with, you know, pretty open arms and, and laudatory uh, statements, uh, not willing to shake hands with Angela Merkel. You know, after a while, you do look at that and you sort of think, well, you know, I mean, that's really not something you can entirely dismiss. Right. And, and to the same end, you've 
talked to a lot of people who are clinicians, psychiatrists, professors of psychology who, you know, are kind of bumping against the, up against the so-called Goldwater rule, which is that you don't diagnose public figures from afar. But, but that's bumping into a different reality, right, which is mm-hmm. that sooner or later, if, if in fact you have a situation that really looks kind of life-threatening for the people who are being governed by this guy, that maybe you can't follow the Goldwater rule anymore. Well, you know, um, as you know, because I know you did a show on it, the Goldwater Rule still uh, muzzles most, almost all psychiatrists um, to, they're afraid to diagnose from afar. Well, um, I, I, I go along with that. But some psychiatrists who gathered at a town hall meeting last week at Yale University uh, broke that uh, barrier and I think, I think started something important. Because they took on their, they took as their uh, raison d'etre what they call duty to warn, and that duty to warn is based on a California case in the 1980s where a mental health counselor at a college heard from a patient how he really wanted to kill his girlfriend because she had dropped him, and he said it more than once, and the, the mental health counselor said, well, you know, patient privilege, you can't tell. The guy murdered the the, the other student. And, and the mental health counselor was held up on charges, and as a result, a law was passed in California, state law, called duty to warn. And now 38 states have that law. So if you magnify the danger, the possible danger that a president might um, carry with him, you could say, some would say, well, if he really gets into a uh, a brinkmanship with the North Korean leader, he he would be endangering hundreds of millions of people. Uh, so the, some psychiatrists can say, we have a duty to warn. And what those um, professionals said at Yale last week, they didn't diagnose him from afar. Sure, they use words like narcissism and sociopath, which are common terms that lots of people ter- throw around. They said they wanted to you know, to warn people about Trump's dangerousness, that he is dangerously, you know, divorced from reality sometimes. He seems to believe some of his lies, and so they become delusions, and he's married to them, and he can carry them on for five years, as he did in the the case of calling, uh, you know, his predecessor uh, a native of Kenya. Right. Well, Gail Sheehy, it's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. I want to reiterate that Gail Sheehy will be this year's honorary degree recipient at the 18th Commencement Exercises at Goodwood College on June 3rd in East Hartford. Thanks so much for visiting us today. Well, it was a pleasure, and I'm delighted to come to Goodwin College because they're doing wonderful things to uh, train young women especially to work in the factories, um, the modern factories of Connecticut, and to go into nursing and other helping professions. I think it's a great credit to Connecticut that it has a college like Goodwin. All right. It was our pleasure to have you today. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back with our final segment, maybe some good news for once about a wax worm. In place of our scheduled cricket match featuring Yorkshire versus Lancashire in the London One Day Cup, 
ESPN is proud to bring you actual crickets. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is handling ESPN's play-by-play for the Golden White versus Blue and Black Dress Bowl. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bill Simmons. This week, our Radio for the Deaf programming moves to Wednesday for a show about the afterlife. That episode will be available in American Sign Language on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. On tomorrow's show, why everything these days, from elections to sports to Oscars, seems to defy the odds. Okay, knock it off, crickets. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, we're calling this the year of unexpected outcomes. Um, Starting sometime last year, things um, stopped happening the way that the odds said that they will, which doesn't mean that you should ignore scientific evidence or mathematical uh, predilections. It just means psychologically that we've had to make an adjustment, uh, whether it's the Oscars or the Super Bowl or the elections or the Brexit vote. Uh, or we got to keep going endlessly. Anyway, that's tomorrow's show. And yeah, and I do want to um, reiterate. So as many of you know, we've developed a style of programming that essentially allows the deaf community to experience radio shows. And we can't do them all the time. We wish we could, uh, but we can do them once in a while. We are going to do one this week on Wednesday. It's going to show about um, the afterlife, including some of the science uh, of the notion of an afterlife. Anyway, that'll be available on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page in American Sign Language. All right, we're moving on here. All right, plastic. Uh, The world produces about 300 million tons of plastic, most of it uh, not particularly degradable. It winds up everywhere in every corner of the earth uh, and especially in the oceans where it's an especially huge problem. So what to do about it? Well, there isn't any magic bullet, but there might be a magic worm, and the worm can't fix all of our problems, but the worm might be able to fix some of our problems. So uh, we're going to conclude the show today talking about that with Jonah Bromwich, a breaking news reporter for The New York Times, and Frederica Bertocchini. I hope I said that right, scientist at the Institute of Biomedicine and Biotechnology uh, of Cantabria in, in Spain. Uh, welcome to both of you. And uh, Dr. Bertocchini, maybe I can start with you. I know you're uh, just uh, off of a plane, uh, but maybe you can talk about the way that you discovered this. This is uh, one of those scientific discoveries that happened almost by accident. You're a beekeeper, right? Yes. Uh, good afternoon, first of all. Yes, I'm a beekeeper in my free time uh, as a hobby. And uh, I keep my beehives at home when they're empty of bees, of course, during the winter. And in cleaning them, I just saw these uh, waxworm. Uh, they were full of waxworm. They were infested, which is not a surprise because this is a plague. Uh, this worm is a plague for beekeepers. So I put them in a plastic bag, and after a little bit, the plastic bag was riddled with holes, and the and the worms were crawling around in my place. So accidental, yes. Yeah. So if you've ever seen this, I mean, a beehive that's infested in this way, it's if you can imagine uh, the little cells of a honeycomb, each one of them with a nasty little grub-like, ugly little worm curled up inside it. It's an unpleasant thing for a beekeeper to see. <laughs> so did you did you? jump to a suspicion from there? In other words, having seen the holes appear in the plastic bag where you were keeping these worms, did it then occur to you, wow, what what are these worms doing? How are they doing this? Yes, yes, it did, because actually there's a little story behind that. With my colleague, uh, Paolo Bombelli, the the, the collaborator in the the Cambridge University, and Chris Howe, we have been talking about um, a possible way of biodegrading 
polyethnoplastic in general, using little insects or animals, and also we tried actually to put some uh, uh, I don't know, snails or things like that in plastic bags for a while, for a few years, just in the free time, just as a, not as a, just exactly, in the free time. And so when I saw these, uh, I said, okay, that's it. That's, uh, we, we need to go for it. We need to investigate that. Um, so, Jonah, um, let me just add you to this conversation. Maybe you can say a little bit, Jonah Bromwich, about where this investigation, as Frederica says, has gone. Sure, yeah, and thanks for having me on. Um, so, yeah, so I, Federica knows better than I do that once this happened, she got in touch with some of her colleagues, uh, Paolo Bambelli and, and Chris Howe and Cambridge, and what they did was they did kind of a, a much more rigorous investigation, which involved not just placing the worms into a plastic bag, but in fact grinding them up. Um, and the reason they had to do that was because there was a chance that uh, the worms in the bags had just been taking the plastic and chewing it into smaller pieces. Uh, so what, what they had to figure out was whether or not the worms were actually digesting the plastic, that is, uh, causing, it, causing the bonds that form it to break apart. Uh, and that is what they found. So, Federica, one of the things, I mean, there's two really interesting questions now. Can, can you isolate the enzyme or whatever it is that's doing that thing? If you grind worms up and, and, and the ground-up worms eat through the plastic, we're assuming, right, that it's an enzyme? Well, so the molecular details are unknown. It's a challenge. We hope it's an enzyme. We need to investigate the molecule, molecules, hopefully the molecule or enzyme, as you said, involved in these. This is going to be our next step or next steps for the future, yes. And, and then the, the step after that, I assume, is to figure out the gene that causes the enzyme so that maybe you can take the worms out of the picture and, and do something more basic. Oh. Absolutely. You know, the, the worm is out, they need to be out of the picture. We cannot alter nature putting millions of worms on top of plastic bags. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, we are going to go for the, using, yeah, using biotechnology, try to study the, the detail of the, of the reaction, the molecules. And if we are lucky enough to get a, a molecule or an enzyme, uh, maybe, you know, producing the lab uh, in vitro on large scale, industrial scale, at that point, uh, uh, maybe we will have a, a tool to, to degrade PE, polyethylene or plastic. And so, Jonah, this is a, an enormous question for science right now, right? I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I gave that figure. I don't know if it even con- it conveys it, 300 million tons uh, of plastic a year. Science yeah, really, believe, yeah, go ahead, yeah. I believe there's about hundreds, hundreds of millions of tons uh, of plastic find their way to the ocean every year, and the estimates are insane. It's something like 8 million metric tons of plastic waste uh, exists in the ocean, and that's not even to mention all the plastic that's in the world's landfills. Uh, and it's not just an eyesore. I mean, this actually has uh, an extreme negative impact on the environment. Uh, birds eat it. Um, it. It doesn't degrade. So this is something that science will have to deal with, and if the waxworm can help to be a shortcut, that'll be a, a huge benefit and a huge blessing. Um, how, Jonah, have you been able to to assess how enthusiastic people are, scientists are, about this particular idea, or does this idea have to fit more into a panoply uh, of different solutions? I think with any kind of discovery, there's an initial excitement, especially with something as serendipitous as this. And when I talked to Chris Howe, uh, he was certainly excited about this. But uh, that also comes with a measure of skepticism, and we know science is a long process. Uh, we reporters get very excited when these sorts of things are found, but uh, there's, a, there's a much longer process that takes place before 
uh, the benefits are actually proven, and we'll have to wait years to see to see what can come about. But it is very exciting. And Federica, uh, is this this must be kind of exciting for you? I mean, being a scientist, being somebody who studies this kind of thing, to have stumbled onto something like this. Uh, I mean, if it were to work out, that would be kind of a thrill for you, I assume. Yeah, 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 no, we were all excited, but I agree with what John said that uh, there's always uh, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. There's some study to be done in that. And, uh, you know, we ha- have our, our hopes high, of course. We need enthusiasm to do that. But uh, we need to, you know, do some, we, we some, some research needs to be done a few years, a few years, and, uh, and, and let's see. So careful, happy, excited, but very careful, yes. All right. Well, it's nice to be able to end our show uh, with some good news. So let's hope uh, that the wax worms uh, come through for us and, and begin to deal with our plastics problem. I, I just got maybe a minute left, so I do, I do want to just mention, uh, again, a couple of things that are coming up this week. Um, tomorrow is the show about the era of unexpected outcomes. Uh, we're very excited to have Mike Pesca, one of our friends and heroes, the host of The Gist, joining us, because we're going to try to look at this in a slightly different way. In fact, I don't know if anybody cares about this, but I mean, one thing that we've done differently is all three producers who develop shows for the Colin McEnroe show, all three episode producers, worked on this show together, which I'm not sure that they've ever done before. So Betsy Kaplan, uh, Josh Nalea, and, and Jonathan McNichol, um, all involved in this uh, and then, um, and so we'll have Mike Pesca on, but we'll have other kinds of experts also talking a little bit about the psychology uh, of or, or how it affects our psychology when we start thinking that the thing that's supposed to happen isn't happening. Um, we'll also talk about the possibility that none of this is statistically or scientifically significant, that ultimately um, physics and mathematics tell us that just, you know, un- unanticipated things are going to happen all the time. Uh, and then on Wednesday, yes, it's going to be a show about the afterlife. We're going to look at it from a bunch of different perspectives, including people who really make a scientific uh, attempt to discover uh, near-death experiences and stuff like that. And we will do that show. If you know anybody who's hearing impaired or in the deaf community who hasn't tried this, we would love it if you would maybe recommend it to them. We want as many people as possible to try this out. You just go to the Facebook, go to the Colin McEnroe Show page, and the video will be up on Facebook Live. All right, I'm done. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. We'll be back tomorrow. As a result of the layoffs here at ESPN, today's last word will be instead the sound of a polar bear stranded on a small iceberg playing Marco Polo with no one responding to it. <laughs>